How are you? Welcome to Gryffindor. Geekiest show ever, number 11. Harry Potter. Everyone will please not panic. You're a little scary sometimes. You know that. Brilliant. Scary. You're a wizard, Harry. And this is the 11th episode of the geekiest show ever, and it doesn't get any more geekier than Harry Potter. Uh, I am Tim Robertson, and I've got David Cohen here. Hello, David. Hello. My wand is twitching. Your wand is twitching. <laughs> and Guy Searle, who's got his uh, wand on ice. That's right. My uh, my wand is limp. <laughs> you got a limp wand. <laughs> That's right. But it is it is mostly due to the cold. So obviously, with the release of the Half Blood Prince movie, we're going to be talking about Harry Potter this week, and not just the movie. We'll, we'll cover, you know, the other movies as well. Maybe the book series, obviously, uh, the universe they live in. But because it's such a big subject, we, I, we're just not going to be able to cover everything Harry Potter on one episode. I mean, David, there's entire podcasts that do this week in and week out on just Harry Potter. Yeah, there there is, and uh, obviously, you know, they're going to be deconstructing the movie in in a lot of detail, uh, and have probably deconstructed everything that's gone before. Yeah, and yeah, I think that's cool. I don't, I myself don't listen to those podcasts. It's not because I don't think they're any good. It's just that I'm not such a fanatic, um, and I think it's unfortunate that the term fan is what I think we'd all probably describe ourselves when it comes to the Harry Potter movies. But fan comes from fanatic, and I'm not fanatical about the movies at all. But no, it, I, I enjoy them. But I do want to say right off the bat, if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to have it ruined for you with spoilers, don't listen to this episode until after you've seen the movie. That's if you haven't read, yeah, if you haven't read the books and you don't know what's coming and you don't want to know, don't listen to this episode. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Because this is the last time I'm going to say on this episode, you know, spoilers. Because they're yeah. just going to be throughout the entire show. Hang up Absolutely. the phone now. Yeah. I, I, saw, I saw on Twitter this morning somebody, somebody tweeted, you know, the, uh, the climax of the movie. And, um, and <laughs> I mean, it started apologizing. People said, she said, I, I assumed everyone had read the book and, you know, the movie wasn't going to be, uh, going to be any great surprise. But... Well, there's a Obviously. lot of people that don't read still. It's amazing. When you look at the numbers of Harry Potter, you'd figure everyone had read it by now. But, but Well, that's an interesting thing, though, because one thing I would say about this film is that if, you, if you're not familiar with the series, if you haven't seen any of the earlier films or read the books, then don't go and see this film because you won't understand what the hell's going on. I will, I will also say that of all the movies that they've released, at least this far, this is probably the one that diverges the most from the book. I mean, they changed some major, major things in in the lexicon of Harry Potter in this movie that does it never existed in the book or completely changed canon. And like, actually, what they've what they've done is they pulled some stuff from the next book, Deathly Hallows, into this film. Yep, uh, and moved some stuff out of this film into the. The next film. Now, I believe the plan is for the Deathly Hallows is to actually do it as two movies. Yes, it is. It's yeah. uh, November of next year, 2010, and then June of 2012 for the second part. 
Yeah, and I think you really have to see this movie as the first of a trilogy. Effectively, you know, it's one story told over three movies. Uh, and, and, you know, again, if, you, if you're not familiar with the, the kind of the progression of the books as, as they build towards, the, you know, the, the end of the final book where the whole kind of ethos of the series gets resolved with, uh, with Lord Voldemort and Harry Potter, um, then again, you're not going to get a lot out of this film because effectively there's a lot of things that are set up uh, and it is, uh, you know, kind of a teaser for what, what is to come. So let's, uh, before we get into the new movie, let's go back a little bit and let's just concentrate on the movies for now. Uh, let's talk about the first movie a little bit. Christopher Columbus directed it, but he was also instrumental in casting the, the kids for the roles. And not just the kids, but the adults as well. And I have to say, we talked about Star Trek, the new Star Trek movie, how brilliantly that was casted. I think the Harry Potter series is probably, with maybe the exception of the Lord of the Rings, the very the the best cast of an ensemble type of picture ever. I mean, every single person that has a role in this movie is brilliant for that role. I mean, can anybody other than Alan Rickman ever play Snape? No, no. I, he I mean, he he just chews the screen up whenever oh, he's on. He's and so he does much it better. With, with virtually no dialogue. I mean, Snape is not a kind of a wordy sort of guy, uh, and it, and he just acts his socks off every time he's on the screen, and it is amazing to watch. One thing I said to said to my wife after we came out of the, at the movie yesterday, and, and I had I saw the Prisoner of Azkaban on TV a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I also saw the Philosopher's Stone probably about a month ago, the first the first movie. Um, you know, one of one of the things that really works in these films, and and uh, you know, it goes goes back to what you're saying about the casting, is not just the principles. Obviously, it was very important to get the right kids in the role, and 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 you know, we'll talk about those in a minute. But the fact that they use all of these absolutely, you know, top class A grade English actors as the supporting cast, as the as the teachers and the wizards and and the people around Harry Potter, just means that you know. And coupled with some pretty good writing, I think, in terms of the scripts, just means that, you know, you have so much talent on the screen, it's very hard to see how these these things were, were never going to work. And, and I think you'll find that, you know, an awful lot of actors are kind of lining up to get in these films um, because they are so iconic. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it really adds to the experience to see all these really great, great actors kind of at work together. In the first movie, obviously... Um Richard Harris was in it. Right. And I personally thought the way he played that character in the first two movies um, was brilliant. Uh, You know, he obviously he died, so he couldn't continue. But I still think he's done the best job on that character. I mean, there was something about him, the twinkle in his eye, the... His mannerisms, the way he spoke, and this kind of a low, gravelly, kind but yet powerful voice that really worked for the character, and that I don't know if the new actor has got there yet. No, I'd say I'd say that uh, Richard Harris, as as an <clears throat> as an actor, had a definite and, for lack of a better term, I'll say, stage presence that you you always knew that when he was coming up or when there was going to be seen with him in it, that it was going to be something worth watching. Now, with, with the other guy, I, I don't know what his Mike, name is. Michael Gambon is his name. Okay, now he's done, he's done a credible job, but, you know, no one is going to mistake his acting abilities 
at least up until this movie, for Richard Harris, and we'll talk more about that when we start talking about the present movie. I, I, I think I think the thing that, I mean it's always it must be really tough for a, for any actor when you know particularly somebody like Richard Harris is has, has you know kind of grabbed the role for a couple of movies have to come in and try and take it over uh, and I think he, what he's done is he's tried deliberately to take it a different take on the character um, which caused a contrast so my my only problem really with with Gambon's performance is that is that kind of his his build and appearance I, is, doesn't really fit with what my personal version of what Dumbledore um, looked like. Um, and whereas whereas Richard Harris was kind of was taller but thinner, uh, yes. and he you know he he kind of he looks like me, Dumbledore. Would, yeah, exactly. I, I you know, mean, there Gam- was no question Gam- when he shows up on Privet Drive at the beginning of the very first movie. There's no question who that is, and it, you you don't even realize that that's Richard Harris, the actor. He is the character, and just his mannerisms, his everything about him, just exhumed that character. It was like he was his entire acting career built up to that moment for this perfect character for him, and unfortunately, he didn't live to see it through to completion. No, and I, I don't want to put Michael Gammon down. No, he's no, a, no, no. If he would have started fine, as a role, fine actor. Yeah. yeah. If he would have started, we would have been saying the same thing. But we do yeah. have something to compare him against, and he's a, he's a good actor. I've liked him in many films, but I, I just never bought into him as this character. Just, I, I just it just wasn't there for me. Dumbledore well, I, was kind of he's the smartest guy in the room. He's the most powerful. But he's also very charming, um, very you know open to suggestion, and he lets you come up with the, your own answer, even though he's kind of steering you towards the answer he wants. Richard Harris did that perfectly. Uh, I, I don't think that the role has been filled well. Uh, yeah, I think what what he what he struggles to bring across is, um, you know the the. And, and the, you know, this movie kind of sums it up because obviously, you know, Dumbledore dies at the end. And, and um, what? Oh my God! You just spoiled <laughs> it for me. <laughs> and, and, and there's a scene after his death where, um, where, um, you know, Potter, Harry Potter is told, you know, oh, Dumbledore really cared very deeply for you. I think that's for me is where Gambon's portrayal slightly fell down. That never came across. His Dumbledore is always seems to be very distant and very. Uh, vacant. Whereas Harris, you always you, you you had that underlying warmth there, even if if it wasn't expressed by the character in the dialogue. Well, now at, at the same time, remember that if if you're following along with the books, that Dumbledore became more distant toward Harry as the series went on. Yeah, that, well, only in, only in the great. fourth book. Um, or no, was it the fifth? Fifth book. The fifth book. No, but no, I'm he, sorry. It, actually, it was this. It was this book, the Half Blood Prince. No, no, it wasn't because no, this is the one no. where he brings Harry into his complete confidence. Yeah, and it's the Order the of the Phoenix, right? Order of the Phoenix Wait. is where. Okay, that was the fourth. Yeah, book. that's when he realizes that you know there's a connection between Harry and Voldemort, and he doesn't want to get too close to Harry, so Voldemort okay. can't learn. Right, the plan. right. That was where Snape was supposed to teach right. him. But in the books, you get the impression on how much this actually hurt Dumbledore, that he missed having the companionship of Harry. And, and teaching him, and that he did have to hand over Harry to someone that he knew Harry both disliked and didn't trust, and that's Snape. And you just don't get that impression with with the character on screen now. Well, I think uh, I, I think that this, as as far as as far as Michael Gammon goes as an actor, 
that he was a real that he was definitely a standout in in this particular movie and and the, the part that I, I particularly thought was I know was I know very well say. done yep. was the scene on the island yep absolutely when when Harry is is forced to keep feeding him or you know making him drink that liquid and I I think he nailed it I I, I you know Richard Harris fantastic actor he may have even be, been able to, to have done it even better. But I think that uh, that Michael Gambon really, really was a standout in this particular film. Uh, I didn't care for his portrayal of Dumbledore in some of the other ones, but I think he was a real standout in this one. Let's talk about Hagrid. Uh, Hagrid really short shifted in the new movie. I mean, yeah. he's he's barely in it, and there's a scene that was completely changed for the movie that's in the book that really ticked me off. We'll get to that in a minute and Hagrid features prominently in it. But in the very first movie, when Hagrid is dropping off Harry on the motorcycle, as well as when he busts in the door in the watchtower... Where the Dursleys are. Yeah. That character... Something about the way he was portrayed on screen, to me, was absolutely perfect compared to what what Hagrid is in the books. I mean, I I think it was perfect. Yeah, that's it. No, I, it, uh, <laughs> I, I mean a lot of these. Before we, I think it's important to say, you know, before we saw the first movie, you know, it was one of the uh, the the book series was one of these things where you thought, can they actually pull this off? Can they actually bring this universe to life in a way that's convincing enough? Um, to uh, to kind of you know bring the fans of these of these books along and. A, really a tremendous achievement to be able to do that to actually visualize all of these characters in a way that you know now when you're reading the books uh, you, you see, see the movie characters you don't see uh, you don't see your own personal uh, view and and all of the illustrations in the early editions of the books now kind of look very very strange because they don't they don't fit in with the uh, with the movie world as it is um, and I, I think Hagrid's a very good example of that you know he now he now is Robbie Coltrane. Yeah, and you know I I've seen Robbie Coltrane in a couple of Bond movies, and uh, a couple other things. I think he was in. Oh, I'm trying to remember now. I, I cannot remember what it was, but just stuff that y- you just didn't expect. This character, this because I always kind of look at him as kind of a character actor. That yeah. if you looked at him, you would think he can't be Hagrid, but you know. You see him as Hagrid now, and you're like, oh, he's brilliant. I do th- seem to think, though, that, I don't know, is is it just me, or does he seem to be a little smaller now, less imposing of a figure as he was in the first couple movies? Well, I think part of that might also be, um, as, this, as the movie series has gone on, they've had him doing less and less. Yeah. And you've got to remember as well that, that and, and I think, the, you know, the clip you played at the beginning of the show kind of exemplifies this, because we heard... Um, Rupert Grint as uh, as Ron Weasley talking there. I mean, those kids were small when yeah. this when the first movie ten came eleven out. years that, old. That yeah, exactly, and that made that made Hagrid look bigger. That's true. <laughs> well, see, they, that's, they've that's really true. grown up now, you yeah. know. And and I think um, you know it really kind of struck me in in this movie uh, for the first time was really actually how they have all grown up. And um, I you know, agree they with all, you there. No, they're all, they all look like you know very close to adulthood. Obviously, they are older than the characters they play very slightly um, because of the passage of time between between the filming of the movies. But um, you know, it really comes across. And 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 is 
it, it brought back a lot of memories for me because I went to a boarding school, a public school, which is, you know, is part of the... There's a long tradition in British fiction of, of you know, uh, boarding school literature where you you kind of, you know, you talk about what it's like to live in a boarding school. Yeah, c- coming-of-age uh, kinds of films. Exactly, and, 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 and uh, J.K. Rowling really kind of tapped into... Part, part, you know, she kind of merged that and the fantasy together to bring these book, these books about. So, so when I watch them, it brings back a lot of memories for me because I remember what it was like to be the tiny little kid in the smallest class in the school and be surrounded by these these kids who were f- only five years older than than me, but you know, were kind of towering up to the ceiling and seemed to be so confident and have all their stuff together and know exactly what they were doing. And and, and in this movie, you see that uh, it's flipped round and and you know, Potter and Weasley are sat there in the corridor. And, and they're the adults who, who who kind of look confident and know what they're doing, and they're surrounded by all these tiny little kids. And it really kind of you know evokes some memories in me of that, um, and and really reinforced to me, yeah, they're growing up. And uh, and obviously the events of the movie. I mean, this is the, the end of the last film and the beginning of this one is, is Harry's turning point, where he goes from being a character who is controlled by the events around him and responding to the events around him to somebody who's starting to take control of the events around him and actually saying well this is what I want to do and this is what I don't want to happen and I'm going to do something about it yeah I I think that it's uh, it's very rare that they have exactly the same characters obviously except for Richard Harris playing the same roles for this long I mean, 2001 is when the very first Harry Potter movie came out, and when it wraps right. up, that'll be 10 years. Yeah. And to to lock these actors in, especially the younger ones, Daniel Radcliffe and uh, Rupert Grint and uh, yeah, Emma Watson, this is life-changing for these guys. And well, they will forever the, be known as these roles, forever. There, there were rumours uh, before this film went into production that Emma Watson was was thinking about not completing the set of movies. Yeah, uh, and uh, caused quite a bit of the storm in the press over here uh, because nobody nobody thought really that anybody could replace her. Um, well, not at this point. You know, yeah, obviously they they sorted out, but uh, you know, I mean, you mentioned how how, how Christopher Columbus, uh, you know, he kind of. You know, identified these actors and, and put them into these roles for this for a long time, and I, really incredible casting talent. Because you you go back to that first movie as I did a few weeks ago, it, you can't really see as a as a layperson the potential of them as actors to start delivering the performances they're starting to deliver now. Yes, um, and obviously to to see that in them, and and I have to say I was. I was particularly impressed with the three principals in in this latest film and the performances they gave. Particularly, um, Ron, the guy who plays Ron Weasley, Rupert Grint. He, I mean, he's he's an incredibly talented actor because not only is he, um, you know, he's playing this kind of uh, you know coming of age story of falling in love and you know which girl do I want and that sort of thing. But also, he's got this tremendous comic scene in the movie that was fantastic absolutely and and you know he he literally he was again he was eating up the screen and the audience around me were in absolute stitches during that scene even though it was actually quite you know it suddenly turns dark near the end where you actually realize that he's been seriously poisoned um you know he he absolutely uh you know was 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 in control of it and it it was amazing to see yeah well i he steals scenes every time he's in it but you know who else i think did a really great job and he's always been kind of a, a background character, 
um, Her- Harry's nemesis, and that's Draco Malfoy, played by T- Tom Felton. He's played it since the very beginning, too, so he's obviously grown up with everyone else. In this movie, I think that that character, this actor, really shines in the role. I mean, yeah. you can really see that he doesn't want. Yeah, he doesn't want to be the bad guy. That he really actually does like Dumbledore. That he's only doing what he's doing because of who his parents are and what's expected of him. And he is, in essence, a scared little boy still. And he has to kind of grow up ahead of his time in this movie, in this this year for him. And that's not an easy role to play. And I think uh, Tom Felton did a really good job as Draco Malfoy. I think he's always done a really good job. And I don't think he probably gets enough credit or recognition for that. But in this movie particularly, I think he did a fantastic job. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And and also, I mean, there has to be possibly some resentment on his part that he's always going to be remembered for being this 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 little, you know, snippy, nasty kid. Whereas, you know, the the other three principles, of course, are going to be, you know, loved and adored for however long it takes for, you know, people to, to, to get over these movies. Well, he, he just needs a good agent. There you go. You know, he he needs he need, you know he needs to build off off right. well, this I mean, role th- into doing something different. And if th- if he pulls that off, then then I'm sure you know he'll be fine. Th- there are plenty of other actors who've who've played you know an unexpected bad guy kind of role. But his his particular problem is you know this has been most of his career. So for the last ten years, he's been playing this this same type of of nasty character. So, you know, you want to talk about typecasting, how do you get past that? Mm. I think it'd probably be easier for him to get past that than it would be for Daniel Radcliffe to get past Harry Potter. Well, I mean, Daniel Radcliffe has been doing some stage work. He was in, he's been appearing on Equus uh, yeah. in the, here in the West London West End. He's, I yeah, think but how many people are like going to see that? I mean, really? Well, I, but apparently he's really, really good in it. And, um, you know, if he can... Having established some credibility, I think it's a very smart move to do some stage work because by establishing some real, you know, acting credibility. Uh oh, good old Skype just kind of ate David Cohen, that guy. Uh, you know, different type of roles. We lost. Did we lose David there for a minute? Yeah, we did. That's okay. I wasn't saying anything important. Anyway. No, I know. <laughs> so let's talk about the new movie now, uh, Half Blood okay. Prince. It started out, I thought, really strong. The the visuals of the Death Eaters in London was breathtaking because it's really the first time you get to see magic or magical creatures in, quote, the real world. That's not forest. It's not on the grounds. It's not at Harry's house or at a zoo. I mean, the real world. And I thought it was done really effectively. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that. Um and some of the stuff that they were showing them do was, of course, it was it was right out of the book. Uh, one thing that I, I'm kind of sorry that they didn't do and that they haven't done in the series was the, the interview between the Prime Minister and the Minister of Magic. I was really kind of looking forward to that myself because, you know, that is in the book. Yes. Where he shows up and he says, well, you know, these things happening, this is magic, and we're, we're trying to keep track of it, and the Prime Minister is oh, newly elected, is completely out of his... Death and he's like I, you know this is craziness and um you know I, that was brilliant in the book and it yeah, really where, where, yeah well she actually you know as, as she wrote those scenes in the book she 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 actually kind of of 
showed that the prime minister, when he would come into his office, would be looking at that that one particular painting that would announce when the minister of magic was yeah. coming every day. Like, oh, is it going to be today? Or, oh, no, just leave me alone. I'd rather deal with a nuclear crisis than the magic world again. Yep. And, but it really establishes that the, the world of Harry Potter supposedly exists in the real world. And the book really anchors it in this particular book. Yes. Uh, in Half-Blood Prince. But they don't really do that except for the very beginning where they show the Death Eaters in London. Right. Well, and there's, there's a scene in... I mean, probably didn't have as much resonance to you because you're not familiar with uh, with our rail network. But actually, by by set, by having Harry show up in a in a railway cafeteria in a in a you know a suburban railway station that actually for british audiences i think would would have anchored it very close in the real world because that's a, an environment we're very familiar with you know my problem uh, with that scene is it never happened in the book and that and this is the story in which harry potter knows why he has to be at privet drive because of the magic there that protects him from voldemort and the death eaters when he's at yeah. his aunt and uncle's house and for Harry Potter just to be at some coffee shop in the middle of London, I thought was crap. Well, yeah. it, it, I it, mean, go ahead. Dan. Yeah, I, I just I I think they're they're obviously they they're they're trying to avoid exposition uh, and uh, to to put him back at the Dursleys. And and they would have had to try to explain the magical protection thing, and I think it just would have been you know five minutes of screen time they could do without. I mean, this is already quite a long movie. That's true, but I don't know. It still bothered me that he was there, and I think the people that are going to this movie are probably, for the most part, fans of the books. And I don't know, just to to break canon like that right at the beginning kind of took me out of it a little bit. I mean, I immediately thought to myself, that's not in the book. That's or why is he there? Yeah, I mean, he's just he likes especially the fresh with, air. with a uh, uh, what's the name of the newspaper? The, uh, the Quibbler? Uh, no, it's no, the, not uh, the Daily Prophet. The Daily Prophet, right? You know why has he got a Daily Prophet at a railway cafe? You know where the pictures are moving around and everything else. That would kind of give it away that there was something unusual about him or something unusual. Well, the pretty about girl, the even the pretty girl in the the waitress even says, "I thought I saw the picture on your paper move." You know, right? And that's that's something that you know, just from reading the books and seeing the movies, you you could kind of say was was you know the the intermingling between the magical community and the Muggles was kind of discouraged for that very reason. Right. That they didn't want the Muggles not so much because they they were afraid of being wiped out, but you know they they just didn't want to have the, the the bad old days come back where you know if if you had any magical talent you were you know put on the rack or, or tied to a stake or whatever. Right. I think that what this scene did that I liked was that in a roundabout way, it showed that Harry Potter was enjoying being somewhere that Harry Potter himself isn't this famous person that everyone kind of, you know, stares at and wants to talk to him. And, you know, they're in awe of who he is, the boy who lived and now the chosen one, because that's what the papers are all saying that he's in, you know, the muggle world where they don't know who Harry Potter is. The girl even says, who's Harry Potter? And some, some tosser. Yeah, you know, so mm-hmm. I liked that it established that, but it's still, it, I thought it broke with canon a little bit too much. So let's get into uh, more of this movie. What did you guys think overall, David? Um, I enjoyed it. I, I, 
the problem the problem for me as i say is that you know this is the first first movie of a trilogy effectively finishing the the entire story and so it sets a lot of things up that that kind of aren't resolved um and i think the ending for me was a little bit rushed um i would have liked to have seen more you know more of a battle as as the uh, as the death eaters move through through hogwarts bearing in mind you know the kind of the the whole um you know, the whole thing that Draco was doing through the entire movie was figuring out how to get them into the castle. The fact that they kind of just walked around it unopposed, to me, didn't really sit very no, well. No, it was very anticlimactic. Yep, yeah, I'd agree with but, you. That's one of my uh, biggest uh, problems with this movie is the ending. But go on. Yeah, and, and also bearing in mind that the, the movie, like the book is called Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, there was less emphasis on the spell book um, and kind of the twists at the end about who's the, whose spell book, it, whose potion book it is, than, than I was expecting because you know it was um, you know obviously you know that kind of is is like the name of the movie and, yet, and halfway through the through the movie the book kind of disappears and that's the end of it. Yeah, and then it's kind of mentioned as an aside at the end. Um, yeah. I, I think I think that was a shame. I can understand why they did it, but it, again, it comes back to this thing that they're trying to set up the next two movies. Uh, with with this movie, but uh, I I enjoyed it. I thought they had a very good balance of light and shade. There was you know there was these great comic pieces, and there was a lot of laughs in the movie, and a lot of enjoyment and 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 pleasure in 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 the world, which is is one of the things I've always got out of the Harry Potter series is you know enjoying seeing the magic at work, and there was a, there was enough of that for me, um, uh, while still having the very dark tone and, and foreboding of of things to come. Um, yeah, this is so, this is that last bit of innocent for these characters. Absolutely, I mean, you know, it kind of all really turns to crap after this film. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and, until until the denouement at, at the very end. Yep. Um, so so you know, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was um, as a fan of the series. I thought this was probably one of the stronger of 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 the mm-hmm. movies we've had so far. Um, I, th- but as I say, I go back to saying that if you're not into Harry Potter and you haven't seen all of the other movies or or read all read all of the books, then this is completely inaccessible to you. And uh, you know anybody who's, who goes along just accompanying a, a friend or a relative who is a Harry Potter fan and just thinks, well, I'll, I'll come along and see what it's what it's all about, is going to think what you know, spend the whole movie thinking what the hell is going on here. I really don't. Yeah, who understand. are these characters? <laughs> yeah. So what do you who think, guys? Where are these places? Um, overall, I, I thought it was it was it was probably the strongest of the movies that have come out so far. I felt that, uh, considering that uh, Snape is the half blood prince, that he was given kind of short shift throughout most of the movie. You really don't see him that much. Um, I thought that when you know, at, right after Dumbledore is killed and Harry is chasing him, that one of the one of the ways in the book anyway that that Harry got Snape to turn around and fight him was to call him a coward and you didn't really get that sense of outrage from Snape that you that you feel in the book if if you know what i mean you know, oh, Snape, absolutely Snape just seemed kind of like you know oh shut up potter you know and and swishes his spells away and you know and and you know makes his little speech and then and then off they go well, um, where is I mean, in the book, that was that was. Oh, he was how, furious. He well, was furious well, that's, in well, the that's book. Because, that's because how that's how James Potter got to him, wasn't it? When they were kids. Yes. Yeah. So and Harry you know, knew was that. A, yeah. Um, I, I felt that that 
some of the scenes they added, like the uh, the Weasley home being destroyed, that that whole sequence was completely unnecessary. That um, they showed the the Weasley twins and, the, and their magic shop without ever really saying how they were able to open up the store. And in in the books, of course, Harry had given the the Weasley twins the money from the tournament that he was in, yep. and that's what they used to open up the store. Right. Well, now they just have this great big huge store in the middle of the well you can't really see it in the movie but it's it's the you know the most fashionable magical neighborhood in in the uh in the Harry Potter world and how did they do this how did they get the money to do this it was just it well, was like one of the it's just taken that, for granted that 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 they just did it well uh, uh, let me stop you there and say that i don't know why they did this but in the movie they placed it in Deacon Alley that's not where that magic shop is in the books. Well, in Diagon Alley? Yeah. No, it wasn't in Diagon Alley because they were right down the street from uh, Ollivander's, the wand maker. Right, which is in the alley. That's where in the very first book. Oh, that's okay, where, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of that that the less reputable part of Diagon Alley. Oh, right, yeah, right, where right, Bergens, right. Where Bergens and Box were. Right, but the the joke shop is supposed to be in that town right next to Hogwarts. It's not supposed to be in, in Diagon Alley. Uh, I always thought it was in Was Diagon it in Hogsmeade? Alley. I thought it was no. in Diagon Alley. No, it was, it was in Hogsmeade because, remember, they on their uh, their little sojourns to that city, that's where they go. And it's super popular with all the students. Uh, no, I, I'm pretty sure that, that it was in Diagon Alley in the was books. It? Yeah, yeah because when, when they all when they all met and went into the store, it was when they were going to get their supplies for that year. Yeah, I think you might be right. Um, and you, well, you and that was something else. They didn't even show Hogsmeade in this movie. No. Well, they showed him coming back from it. Yeah, and they showed the inside of the Leaky Cauldron, but yep. uh, but they didn't actually show the the town itself. This okay. Well, now I'm 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 a little confused now when. When Harry and Dumbledore come back from from getting that locket, oh, okay, you know what? That's in the next book where they meet up with um, with Sirius's brother. Never mind. Yeah, Sirius's was, brother. Yeah, Rab. Uh, Rab isn't Sirius's brother. That's Dumbledore's brother. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah, you're that's, right. That's, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's Regulus Black. No, no, it's it's Dumbledore's brother. The the, the guy right. guy runs the Leaky Cauldron is is Dumbledore's brother. Yes. Okay. Okay. You're right. Because you're right. you know that's why he knew it would be a safe place. Um. But Harry doesn't find out who that is until, until Half Blood Prince. No, he finds out in the Half Blood Prince because when they come back, the Death Eaters are. Um, no, is it the last book? It's the last book because when it, when they come back from that from that island where they get the locket, they meet up with I can't think of what the woman's name is. They meet up with a, with a woman that's who, right who runs something there in Hogsmeade. Yep. And then and then she kind of stands watch while somebody goes off. I can't even remember now. Somebody goes off and does something, and then yeah, you don't Harry, find out who Harry he is and Dumbledore. They... Harry and Dumbledore at that point go back to the castle. Right. So let's talk about a couple of things that you hit on. And I'll, let me give my opinion, too. I like the movie. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I'll definitely buy the Blu-ray when it comes out. Although I'll probably wait till they all come out on Blu-ray and just get a big box set of it. 
You um, Blu-ray snob. Yeah. <laughs> I'm buying the Blu-ray, Blu-ray of Watchmen next week, I tell you that. Oh, man. Um, they, they've added over an hour worth of stuff to it, so <laughs> I'm there. Anyways, I like the movie, but I had some major problems with it, and maybe it's because perhaps I am somewhat of a Harry Potter snob. Uh, I know what the canon is supposed to be like. The Weasley home is not supposed to be destroyed. That no. really, really bothered me because that's where uh, their son gets married in the next book. I mean, that's it's, the wedding well, is the not, last. I have bit. a feeling that you're not even going to see. That oh part. no, you're not. They're not. They're, they're, uh, that's already on the cutting room floor. Because Fleur's, Fleur's wasn't in this movie, and um, uh, you know he, he and he and he oh, yeah he wasn't and he wasn't bitten by um, Fenrir the the werewolf right which is also a major plot, plot point from the next film so right well, that obviously that whole big battle at the castle. Exactly. So, so um, obviously that whole thing is is gone. Yep. Um, so the, the the Weasley home being destroyed to me is the biggest problem with this movie. Um, not because of what happens in the next book, but be, because what that house represents to all the characters. It is their when they're not at home oh, and they're not right. at the castle at the school. That's where they are. That's where they are. And it's kind of their second home. Especially because, as we know, Ron is going to eventually marry... Hermione. Hermione. And Harry's going to marry Ginny. And it's it's the one constant place where they know that they can be somewhat safe. Uh, they feel completely relaxed there. And I saw no purpose at all in destroying the home. Um, no, it was. I, and, I felt and the it thing that insulting. makes me crazy about that was, you know, they throw in this this battle scene there at at the Weasley home, yep. and yet short shift the the, uh, the battle, ending of the yep, film, absolutely, where yep. they had the the big battle in the castle, yep. and to me that was one of the most exciting parts of the book, absolutely, was and the running battle that, as they were trying to to get away and get out of the castle and and they just basically and they didn't even run they just showed them walking through the corridors and then next thing next thing you see is them all outside well destroying the home i thought was kind of a slap in the face of a lot of people that has been following these movies and that are such fans of the books it made no sense i'm surprised that it was allowed to happen and I totally agree with you, Guy. They show kind of a battle there, but they don't show the battle at Hogwarts. And that's where my other huge problem with this movie is. A. You know why they've done that, of course. Yes, because the they reason, want to save the big want, fight scene for the last movie. They want movie. to save the big big Hogwarts battle for, for, the, for the end of the story. Yep. Um, but, yeah, we probably could have lived with something <laughs> in this one. Yes. And I agree with you. The whole... That whole sort of sequence of the burrow, it didn't ring true. It didn't seem to. It didn't seem to move the story on. It it, it very much smacked of, um, oh, the pacing of the script is such that we need to have some dramatic tension here. Yep. How can we do that? Oh, the easiest way to do that is have a Death Eater attack. Yep. Uh, let's let's have them all run out into a cornfield and and you know run the risk of being killed. Even though we know they're not going to be killed. I mean, that was the problem with the scene. Is that there was no element of risk to any of the characters because you knew no. they were all going to be there for the end of the movie. It, the only so, thing that it really did was show Ginny, showed how much Ginny really cares for Harry Potter because regardless of what the danger is, she runs right after him. You know, the adults never go after Harry, which was retarded. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But Ginny, 
runs right through the fire and goes after Harry to to help Harry. So I I like the fact that they kind of showed how much she cares for him. Um, they didn't. Yeah, but there, there, there could have been other ways to have done. Oh, done absolutely. That as well. And 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 the the love story was pretty much taken care of already. They really didn't need that scene. It was very insulting. Uh, I'm still a little ticked off about that. Uh, the ending is, of course, the other part that I have the major contention with for a number of reasons. Number one, it didn't look like where I thought Dumbledore would die. Number one, but I can live with that. Um, yeah. What I saw in my mind's eye isn't necessarily what you guys would have seen in yours. So I can live with that. But the fact that Harry is not frozen and is not hiding or being hidden yeah. under an invisibility cloak, and yeah. that Harry, by choice... Doesn't do anything. Doesn't do anything. Even when the Death Eaters show up, Harry does nothing. And that's well, where I have the my, my first big problem. Because even though Dumbledore ordered Harry not to do anything... It's not in that character just to stand there when all those Death Eaters show up and Dumbledore has been disarmed. That's the first thing. The second thing is when Snape walks up, sees Harry, tells him to be quiet, and goes up there. And Harry still doesn't do anything. Still doesn't do anything, even though through the entire, you know, all the films up to this point, forgetting about the books, through Philosopher's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of goblets order of the phoenix he's always hated snape and for him to trust snape at this particular time when his mentor is disarmed almost a father figure yeah well no almost about it he's definitely a father figure and he's confronted by four death eaters draco malfoy and now snape and harry's just going to stand there doing nothing Made absolutely no sense. It did make complete sense in the book, in that you know, he yeah. he got caught in that spell. He can't move. He's underneath the but invisibility the, yeah, cloak. Yeah, but that was the thing. They obviously, obviously, the scriptwriter could not figure out a way to, um, you know, dramatically get Harry into the position he was in in the book, where he was on the immobilized on the invisibility cloak. They obviously couldn't figure out how to write that into the script. Yeah, and well, they could have like I don't know read the books. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with you, guy, because it, yeah. in the, it's the way it's done in the book is brilliant. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect they sense. Yeah, they obviously wanted to tighten the editing and and you know again remove some of the one of the things. I mean, one of the criticisms I have about about the Harry Potter books as opposed to the, the movies is there's an awful lot of moving around from place to place to do things. Yep. In the books, and and you know, people, uh, the characters in the books often take a long time to do things. I mean, if you think about it, every single, obviously, every single book is a year, and whatever the the challenge or the quest or the or the puzzle that Potter and his friends are trying to solve every year, they take exactly a year to do it. You know, they spend months uh, going. Hermione helps. spends months going to the library reading books to kind of move the plot along. Yep. Uh, and and obviously the filmmakers here has made a choice saying, well, no, we want to keep it moving. So this this is the solution they come up with. But I completely agree with you. It was weak. It, it was more than it, weak. I thought it was insulting to the character. I mean, there's no way Harry Potter is just going to stand there and trust what's about to happen. It, it made no sense. So that really kind of ticked me off. I did like the way that Dumbledore pleaded with Snape. 
Now, when that book first came out and I got to that part and I read it, uh, my wife was reading it too. And, and she was kind of upset because Dumbledore died. And we didn't talk about it until I got to that point. And then we talked about it. And she said, I think it shows that Dumbledore's or that uh, Snape really is the bad guy. And I said, no, I think it shows that Snape is a good guy, which I was proven right, you know, with the next book. And that what Dumbledore was begging for was t- Snape to do it, because if he doesn't, and he's going Malfoy to die. Has to. Well, no, well, number one, Malfoy is going to have to do it, and it's going to completely corrupt him. And first and foremost, Dumbledore is a teacher, and he doesn't want any harm to befall a student. And or it's going to be the end of Snape. That Snape's going well, to die. Well, also, also as well, I mean, Dumbledore at this point is going to die anyway because he's uh, he's got that curse in his hand, mm-hmm. which, again... They didn't really... They hardly gave... No, well, I, I, th- and I, and I, I... Well, no, they don't get... They, they, I mean, the, the Half-Blood Prince, the book, didn't give any information. You only found find out how at the end of the Death, Deathly Hallows exactly what, what happened all of that. Yep. But the point, the point is, is, um, is that actually the way that was portrayed to me was completely wrong i mean in 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 the book it was made clear that that dumbledore's hand and arm was immobilized was withered was barely usable you know the thing was a mess really whereas actually in in this one it looked like he he you know burned had a, mild, had a bit a bit of a mild burn on it yeah and and, to me, and then it was just half of his fingers it wasn't even exactly. the whole hand or anything they should have made an awful lot more of that and i think that was also a somewhat of a poor choice so that's a big problem for me. That, that what how Harry witnesses the death of Dumbledore, and you know, taking that a little bit farther. Okay, you know, Snape or uh, Dumbledore says, you know, please. Which to me, I don't, I don't really think he's pleading so much as as telling Snape, I understand what it is you're about to do, and and it's okay that you know this is all going to work out no, in the end. I disagree. I think I think Snape was not going to do it until Dumbledore started pleading with him to do it to save Malfoy's Well, that's soul what I mean. that's what spirit. I said. That, no, that's that what you said was that when he figures out what he's about to do, he pleads with him to do it. I don't yeah. think that Snape was going to do it until Dumbledore pleaded with him. Well, he, he, you know, I mean, it was, they were all at the point of no return at that point. There was absolutely no way unless Snape turned on the Death Eaters. Well, that's what he was planning. No, because that would have, that would have killed him almost instantly anyway, because he had done the, uh, the unbreakable vow. Yeah. So he, he couldn't not do it. Well, he could turn on the, he just, he just couldn't hurt Malfoy. No, no, no. He he. Part of the vow was that if Malfoy couldn't do it, yeah, that's that true. He would. Yep. And if he doesn't, he dies. And that's right. one of the reasons that he's pleading with him do it because a he didn't want Malfoy to be corrupt because of this. Because once Malfoy does this, it's over for Malfoy. Yeah. And Dumbledore sees the potential good in him still. And B, he doesn't want Snape to Snape die. Because he, you know, for not doing it. Right. But but getting back to that, now, right after Dumbledore is hit with the curse and he's falling down, they're all still on that platform. Harry is right underneath them, and he still Does nothing. has done nothing. Now, they've got to climb down from that oh, platform yeah. right past where he's standing. 
Yep. Is he in such shock that he couldn't do anything? Because they don't really show it. They they don't explain it at all. And, and to me, a- along with the fact that Harry did absolutely nothing, you know that the the ending of this film was to me a major disappointment. Oh, absolutely. And Plus then, the fact that they didn't even show any of the the funeral. Well, we'll get to unless that unless they're a saving that unless they're saving that for the next film. Well, I think that's a possibility, but. Um, Moving back to right after he's killed, Dumbledore, and the Death Eaters have to leave. What they never showed, and, and David said this earlier, is the rampage that the Death Eaters go on inside Hogwarts. And the running battle between some of the students, the um, um, Dumbledore's, the Dumbledore's army and the Order of the Phoenix. Against the Death Eaters. Against the Death Eaters inside and Hogwarts, it, right. it was a it was a gross mistake. mistake it was, it was, a, it was a miscarriage. That. It was a miscarriage of of the the book itself, as far as showing uh, the some of the drama and some of the action that, now, that J.K. Rawlings right. had in the book. It also and, it was just and because left out. because Hagrid is so in this movie a little. The end of this movie really could have established how powerful Hagrid really is because they haven't done that in the movies yet. No. When they're tearing ass across the lawn and Hagrid, knowing that Dumbledore was just killed, is in full berserk giant mode and he's just brushing off stun spells off of his chest like they're nothing and he's tearing ass after them, yelling, is a very powerful scene, and you really understand how powerful and what a badass Hagrid really is. That this really isn't somebody you want to mess with. That spells are bouncing off of him because of his giant heritage and his rage. You don't get any of that in the book. Nothing. No. Or and, in the movie. In the movie, I'm sorry. You, you get it in the book, but you don't get any of that in the movie. And I thought that that was a, an abomination not to have that scene in this movie. I, it really ticked me off because this is the first time, and even in the books, that you really understand how powerful Hagrid really is. I mean, because in the book, he's tearing ass after them, and multiple Death Eaters are shooting him with stun spells, and they're not doing anything. They're not slowing him down a bit. And they're like, holy crap, we got to get out of here. <laughs> you know, but he just keeps coming. And Harry Potter, like you, what what you were talking about, is also tearing ass after him. Um, and the battle between him and Snape in the book, you actually believe that Harry may actually stop him. Um, and then insulting Snape is what gets Snape to finally turn around and face Harry. You don't get any of that, really, in this movie. And it just falls flat. And the whole yeah. scene when they finally go back and there's Dumbledore and all the students raise their wands and th- it was stupid. Yeah, where they and you know that was uh, that that whole scene where they raise their wands and all the tips light up and it, and it kind of dissipates the the death mark in the sky. That was time that could have been much better spent showing uh, uh, furthering the battle. Yes, absolutely. Yep, and if they wanted to end it differently from the book. They could have ended it simply with Harry Potter laying in the grass, staring after where Snape has, you know, escaped through the gate. And then that would have been a very powerful ending. And then you would have been thinking, oh, my God, 
what's going to happen in the next movie. As it is, eh, not so much. Okay, so Hermione and Ron and Harry are going to go off after them and blah, 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 blah. You know, yeah. but yeah, you're right. They, they could have, the ending, the ending could have been done so much better. And well, they ended it like Return of the Jedi, where, where Luke's standing there with his arm around Princess Leia and the droids, and they're standing on the ship looking out. That's exactly how they ended this movie. And yeah, and you know that there's there's going to be more that's coming, but you don't really get a sense of what it's going to be, right? Because they haven't established how many Death Eaters there really are, what the world's like, um, you know, where has this Order of the Phoenix been, other than in the one movie? You don't get any of that. You don't really well, understand you, that there are, did, really is see, two armies building. Yeah, you saw Tonks and you saw. Um, uh, Professor, um, yeah, Lupin. Yep. Uh, oddly named, considering yeah, he's a wolf. exactly. Um, yeah. You did see them at, at the Weasley house during that that stupid really really scene. stupid. But, a, but again, you know, they were kind of it was kind of a token appearance, and you know, the problem is the the difficulty they have. I know they've got two more movies. They've got five hours of story left to go. The difficulty they have, yeah. Well, no, I mean, they this, two and a half hours one, each uh, movie. This one's two and a half hours, and that's that's kind of the runtime they like to to set for these films. So they've got five hours of story left to go. The difficulty they have is they have to get everyone invested in some more of these supporting characters because we're going to lose a whole load of them before the end of the story. Absolutely, and, and they're and, not going to carry any weight at all when they die. Exactly. Especially exactly. Tonks and and, and Lupin. Lupin. Well, you Tonks know. and Lupin is, is is a particularly tragic one, Absolutely. but also. You know, the, one of the weeks because they just had a child, I think. Yeah, yeah. But where where's Dobby been in all these movies other than Chamber of Secrets? Yeah, I mean that and that's, he's, he's got a big role to play still. Absolutely, but you know, why couldn't they put him somewhere in Order of the Phoenix or Half Blood Prince? Even a five minute bring back would have refreshed that character in the moviegoer's mind. So if and when he dies in Deathly Hollows in the movie, who knows if they're even going to show that? It's going to have much more, holy crap, Dobby just got killed. you know. Yeah. And I don't really get how they're going to break Deathly Hollows into two movies. Because the first half of the Deathly Hollows is good in book format, but it's going to be deathly boring yeah, on the screen. Them, them hiding well, like, in if, their tent. And- I, well, I, I think actually one of the criticisms of Deathly Hollows is that, again, because she wanted this like year long structure where you know everything finishes at the end of the year yep. um you know she had all this uh, this kind of hiding out in the tent during during the year which basically was equivalent again of Hermione sat in the library yep yeah <laughs> and um and but they're trying you know, to find gonna, more of the hor- horcruxes now, now they've got they've got two they've got two films to make out of that so so perhaps that's where they're going to going to use it um by taking some of the focus i mean that'd be the gutsy move is to actually uh, after the first half of the of the next movies, actually take a lot of the focus off the principles yep. and really do some work with the uh, supporting characters. Yep. Well, now that, that would be to. the smart move to do, but I don't know whether they're going to do it. Or I don't not. think they will. I, I really don't think they will. I think that they've come to the conclusion that people aren't going to the movies to see the supporting characters. They want to see Harry Potter. They want to see Ron Weasley. You know, and it's unfortunate because I think that's actually what people do want to see. You know, there's a reason that George Lucas introduced characters later in the story that had emotional impact that, you know, you bring them back. And they're now they weren't there at the beginning, like Lando Calrissian, but 
they had a huge part at the end. They didn't really do that so much with the Harry Potter universe yet. You know, they introduce these characters and then they're gone. And you don't see them anymore, like Dobby. and uh, Or like the giant spider. I mean, his death had just no a impact. big freaking spider sitting there and Hagrid's crying for some reason. A lot of people might not even remember back in, what was it, uh, was it? It was uh, the Chamber of Secrets. No, no, it wasn't that. It was uh, Chamber of Secrets. No. Yeah. Yeah, it was Chamber of Secrets. Well, because when, Hagrid... that's, that's when you very that's when you saw him for the first time, but then you saw him in in giant form in um... <sighs> Prisoner Damn of it. Azkaban. No, Goblet Fire. No. Yeah, got... no, no, one right after that. Order of the Phoenix. Order of the Phoenix. No, the big spiders were in Chamber of Secrets. When they go out into the woods and I don't remember, it doesn't matter because it it had no emotional impact at all in this movie. It, it made no sense, and the only reason it was there was to put Harry in the same place where he had to get the memories. That's what it all set up. Oh, once Hagrid and the other professor it's got. Well, I mean, that was something else. And here's Hagrid with a giant's. Um, Spider? I'm no, 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 no. I mean, Hagrid is, he's huge. He's got a, a giant's constitution. Yep. And this little old professor guy has now drunk him under the table? Yeah. Really? <laughs> well, yeah. They they show why in the book, but because Hagrid drank so much more. Well, um, yeah, but you don't really get that impression. No, not in the movie. There, no. There's a lot of problems with the ending of this in that they really don't set up very well the next movies. And I think that's unfortunate. I think a lot of that does go to what you were saying, David, that the filmmakers are looking at the last three movies or the last two books as a trilogy. And they don't want to give too much away here, and they want to save it for the last movie. And let's be honest, if at least half of the very last movie isn't nothing but a giant battle for an hour on screen, I think everyone's going to be disappointed. Because that's what everyone's waiting for. Well, do you think they could really sustain that for an hour? Oh, I could if I was the director. I, I could remember, make the entire remember, last remember, movie nothing but a battle and keep everyone on the edge of their seats for two and a half hours. And they could name it, save it Saving Private Potter. That's right. If you think about it, that battle actually, even in the book, I mean, it goes on for a long time and a lot happens during the battle. Absolutely. You have to, you have to get to the room requirement. You have to get out of there. You have to get... Um, you know, Harry's, you have to get Hagrid's capture, you have to get Harry's capture, you have to get Harry taken into the forest, you have to have, the you know, the dream Snape. sequence. The, y- yeah, you've then got to get back, you've got to get the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the sequence where, yeah, where you've got everybody get, thinks you've got Harry's to, dead. Exactly, you've got to then get back to the castle so that Neville can kill the snake yep. and kind of set everything off again, and then you've got the actual climax of the battle. Um, you know, ultimately, and you've got, you've got to lose half of the Death Eaters along the way, including um, uh, Bellatrix. So there's an awful lot that they need to do in that battle. So it had better be an hour. Otherwise, you know, if it's, if it's like a 20-minute thing, then it will be a, a real cop-out. Yep, absolutely. Yep. So that's our uh, Harry Potter podcast, uh, at least, <laughs> you know, focusing on mostly Half-Blood Prince. We'll do another one of these in 2010 and 2011 as well. (laughs) Um, You know, there's so much to discuss when it comes to Harry Potter and the universe he lives in. There's a lot of interesting ideas that I would love to explore. 
Um, especially if you take, if you pretend that the world is is exactly the way it is right now in the Harry Potter universe, except there's this magical aspect of it, right? Yeah. Was does that mean then Jesus Christ was actually a wizard? And if he wasn't a wizard, he is pretty freaking weak compared to the wizards at the time. I mean, he only had a couple tricks. He made a, a stick turn into a snake and water into wine. I mean... Any first year could have handled that. Yeah, I mean, come on. Come on, come on Jesus. This, this is supposed to be the son of God? I mean, you know. Okay, well, well, Tim, do you realize that this episode <laughs> will probably generate the most email from people we've pissed off by by saying wrong things about either the books or the movies and or now all the religious people. I think though that I think that is a it's a a fun topic to talk about and to discuss. Where would religious deities in the real world fit into a universe like this? Because seriously, it, it was Jesus in this universe nothing but a wizard? Or if he really is the son of God, why wasn't he as powerful as the wizards at the time? You know what I mean? I well, think, think J.K. Rowling's didn't write the Bible. <laughs> and, and it is interesting. Obviously, you know, the, the Harry Potter books have been um, kind of decried by uh, a lot of the Christian yeah, um, movements as saying that they are satanic, which is rubbish. Well, I've, you know. I've actually got an uncle, or I'm sorry, a brother-in-law, who, won't, who would not let his kids read it because he is very Christian. Um, although most of his actions don't bespeak of that, but anyways, he refused to allow that book in his house because it's anti-Christian and this, that, and the other. And of course, all of his kids eventually read it anyways. But when he told me uh, that, yeah. I really had has to bite my it? tongue. No. Has, well, no, that, that's right. Not. So he's going off because what of somebody course. told him of course. rather exactly. than actually, uh, you know, reading the material and evaluating it for himself. Well, I mean, but let, I had let, to bite let, my tongue. It, there isn't, to there isn't anything that J.K. Rowling's wrote as far as, as, far as ideals and storylines. It hasn't been written before in, in various different ways. This, was just, this one just happened to be magic. And they have Christmas. And they have Halloween in the books. I yeah. mean, they even had uh, Christmas in the first movie. Yeah, Happy Christmas. Yeah, you know, it, it's I just I think that's kind of a a neat subject to hit on in more depth sometime. Yeah. Um, we have to bring in someone special for that. Someone that's the much Pope. more religious than I am. The Pope. We'll bring in the Pope. Yeah. That's right. Um, just don't mention anything about Nazis to him. He's kind of sensitive about that. Yeah, I can understand. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to wrap up the podcast on that happy note and, uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Have no the idea. Pope a Nazi. That's right. Have no idea what we'll talk about. In the meantime, if you can go up and uh, review our podcast, we'd appreciate it in iTunes. Try to boost up the figures a little bit, the numbers. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't listen to our flagship show, that's called the MyMac.com podcast. It's produced every single week. In fact, we just had a new episode go live um, the same time that this one goes live. That's right. It's that's me. MyMac podcast number 249. We had two special guests. We had Bill Palmer from iProng Magazine, and we had Lee Givens from AOL. Uh, it was a great talk. We had a lot of fun doing it. And uh, we'd appreciate if you can subscribe and listen to that show as well. But more importantly, we're really looking for feedback. I get a lot of feedback on the MyMac podcast, but we don't get as much feedback on this show. 
and I know a lot of the people that listen to the MyMac podcast listen to this one. So if you're listening to this show, send us some feedback. We'd really, really enjoy it. Feedback at MyMac.com is the address. Even if you hated it. And throw out your Twitters, guys. I am Twitter.com slash MyMac. I am Twitter.com MacParrot. And I am Twitter.com slash David B. Cohen. Well, David, be good. See you next week. Guy Cyril? Yes? You could drink your iced tea now. Oh, <laughs> And for the other two guys, I'm Tim Robertson, and we're out of here. <laughs>